Welcome into Garage Talk, South Grants Pass, Steve Porter. And you may not know Steve, you're about to learn more than you ever even imagined. Probably a national treasure in my opinion, Steve. I'm just going to throw it out there to start. Yeah, I'll definitely do my fair share to, to add a little color and introduce myself to this uh, wide and expanding world of uh, digital medias. What do you think about all this being a guy who kind of grew up interested in technology and electricity and power and all of those things? What do you think about where we're at right now? Well, let me say that I'm 65 years old. And when I was growing up, they still had tubes and transistors had not really been prevalent as of yet, which was the late, late 50s. And television was really the only thing there was for broadcast, you know, radio, of course. And that was black and white television. So to now be able to have better video than TV in your pocket and uh, digital creating anything we can think of, including this and the concept of uh, you doing podcasts and uh, engaging in the world of uh, things that may or may not be of particular interest. But, you know, here we are bringing media, technology and uh, the social fabric of humanity, people to the world. So I think it's really way cool. Good for you. Yeah, it's very exciting when we were talking at the pumpkin patch over the weekend and you were asking me what I was really up to. And I was just telling you that I want to bring more positivity, shine light on some of the people who are doing incredible things, inspire Mm -hmm. others who may not even think they have a chance to get out of whatever situation they're in. You know, myself grew up in a small town of of 700 or less people and never Mm -hmm. thought something like this would even be possible. I never thought I'd be able to sit in a garage and record, let alone do this at some point in my life. Like I didn't think it would be possible technology wise. I didn't know what to expect. You know, that's before MP3s and all of those things came Absolutely. along when I started learning about radio in high school. So to be here now, it is kind of mind boggling to think about how technology has advanced. Well, you're, you're certainly right. And, um, since I've been involved with electricity, electronics and communications all my life, uh, I, I have a greater appreciation for, having seen it evolve since I'm decades and decades old and been directly involved. Um, We'll get into this later, but my profession, my entire life's career and passion has been two-way radio communications. So even though it's not quite at the broadcast level of bandwidth or clarity, you know, music versus just plain old voice, which is a limited range, kind of like telephone, um, I've my whole life been involved with bringing communications in in a clear non-static form to well police fire ambulance businesses and you know all sorts of communications aspect and uh, you being from the broadcast side we kind of share a common thread from being involved with microphones and technology let's touch on real quick the business that you've ran for years we're going to come all the way back around to it Mm -hmm. but just so people know what you did do for quite a long time. I know that you're in the process of getting out of that now, but just yeah. give people the shorter overview of what you did as far as delivering communication, two-way radios, pagers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an industry that I'm proud to continue to represent, um, but since the advent of cellular, the bulk of it has kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. Um, but how it all came to be for me, uh, I'll start at the beginning, and, and then we'll roll into into this communications, but this is pretty cool. I'll tell you a little later where this all was, because that's another subject in itself. But for me, it all started with the Christmas light, the simple Christmas light. 
when I was five or six years old, or maybe four, I don't know, five or six, when I plugged in the family Christmas tree, wow, I was impressed and have been plugging things in ever since. When I was old enough to do decorations on the outdoor bigger tree in the yard, cool. And then I was old enough to climb on a ladder and decorate the house. It took a few more extension cords, but plugging things in ever since. That led me to uh, communications, um, shortwave radio, international broadcasts. My parents were appreciative enough to, to continue my interest to further it along and bought me a shortwave radio. I can remember 7th, 8th grade in the evenings, tuning around, tuning around, hearing stuff from all over the world, amateur radio operators and international broadcasts. I can remember one in particular. They'd come on and say, HCJB, the voice of the Andes. Well, shoot, South America, right? And yeah. wave her in and out because of the way the sound was and all that. And they'd go to some background music and all that. I, I could still hear it. CB radio, walking down the road with a, uh, you know, batteries like crazy in the back with a big, long silver antenna uh, that would telescopic out. And that was CB. So anyway, I, I, I really gravitated to the communications aspect. And um, it, it served me very, very well. Um, chronologically, let me, let me take it here next. So growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, a little bit north of Berkeley. Um, Which, by the way, I'm pretty sure I saw the mountaintop that you used to hang out on, that knoll yes. on the way out of San Francisco a couple of weeks ago when yes. I was with your daughter and son-in-law as we were making our way back and your daughter pointed out to me that that was a spot you used to hang out as a kid and maybe cause a little bit of trouble That's right. in that area there. Right. Carolina knows the stories because we've been down that way, so she saw the geography, geography and such. And yeah, just along the bay by the freeway there, um, perpendicular to the Golden Gate Bridge, but across the bay, the East El bay Cerrito Hills. area. El Cerrito, uh-huh. uh huh. It was called Albany Hill. And uh, as a young kid, cardboard sliding, blackberry picking, uh, playing in the creeks, salamanders, um, rope swings, tree forts. Well, uh, that was like our a refuge. That sounds like a lot of fun to me and something that kids these days don't get to experience as much. It's and especially not there because I'm sure a lot has changed since you lived there. The hill is still there. Um, the trails that we carved have grown over. I was there, you know, a bunch of years ago and looked. Went up there to see what it was like to sit in the same spots. Is that weird? 50 years later. And the oak tree is still there. But the very large branch, uh, 14 inches, 12 inch diameter, that used to hang outward and have a rope swing from it, had already died, rotted, and was on the ground with hardly anything left. You know, 50 yeah. years, the mighty oak. Anyway, the Barry was a great place to grow up in. Uh, you know, middle class area, but with, with uh, UC Berkeley nearby. And being a teenager in the late 60s, it was a very colorful era, uh, uh, such as. Uh, freedom of speech, um, Sather Gate at UC Berkeley, where demonstrations were held. What was it like to grow up during that time period? Was well, that we were so you guys... young, we couldn't really realize the, the philosophies or concepts behind it. But it was adventurous. Uh, we did a lot of exploring, and we were exposed to a lot of the elements that were evolving in that area. Now, as you got older, would your parents let you wander off and explore things? Oh, absolutely. Like they used to? Oh, Absolutely. We walked forever. Even walking to junior high and high school, I'm sure, was several miles. 
just walking. You know, people don't do that as much anymore. You know, neighborhoods aren't the same, safety concerns, whatever. Uh, when we got bicycles, it opened up our whole world. We rode everywhere, all the time. It was a great sense of freedom, a lot of exploring, um, et cetera. But as far as the year in general of the late 60s, um, getting back to that, um, the Vietnam War was well underway. It was starting to wind down. Uh, in 73 or so, it was winding down. But there was major protest. Draft card burning was a common phrase. People were uh, leaving and going to uh, Canada. Um, some of the other concerns, women's rights were, were at the forefront, and they'd call it bra burning. They literally would. They'd oh, hold yeah. them up and set them on fire and it'd be on the news. You know, they tried to get awareness of equal rights, if you will. And they did. They got a lot of awareness at that time for that. Absolutely. Civil rights in general. Uh, there was groups called the Black Panthers and such. Uh, uh, Eldridge Cleaver was a huge name to bring that to the forefront. Um, there were riots in the streets in Berkeley. That was part of it. What was it like to see those as a younger adult or adolescent? We didn't get close enough to see it in person, but it was in our backyards, you know, so to speak, and, and, and the news was on, and, and there it was, right down the street. Cop cars were getting turned over and set on fire. It was major unrest during that era. Um, and then we evolved into the hippie scene, where, you know, people were trying to purvey, you know, love, peace, and optimism, and, and, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, anti establishment that was a common term as well and that was a colorful era that was pretty interesting I, we were a little too young to participate to any great degree but we certainly were of observers and participated on the fringes but to see san francisco one of the biggest names hate ashbury right across the bay uh, and, and to see the music come from it grateful dead the jefferson airplane and janice joplin on and on um the exposure to music was significant. So much came out of the barrier. A group called Tower of Power. Mm -hmm. One of the lead singers later in the years was one of our classmates who he and a group of guys used to stand out uh, behind one of the buildings uh, during lunch hour and they'd be back there trying to harmonize parts and all that. Well, years later, he was the lead singer. So it was a lot of exposure to that. Um, for instance, uh, Eddie Money, who just passed away, I can remember seeing him on a Tuesday night in this little place that was just a podunk nothing, trying to get a name for himself and find his way. It was pretty cool to be a part of all of that. Uh, in high school, we were uh, uh, able to get around enough to go to these places and, and witness it. So the Bay Area was a wonderful place to grow up. And, you know, I wouldn't trade it for a thing. I still have a drawer full of tie-dyes. They're not the originals, but I've replaced them just for the spirit of it all. I was going to say, when I saw you the other day, you had one of your tie-dyes on, so obviously some influence there somewhere. Well, that's it. That's it. You know, flying the colors, so to speak. So as you go through high school and manage to work your way through high school, you have an interest in electricity and technology, and where did it go from there? So in the Berkeley Hills, way at the top, there was a radio site called Volmer Peak up above a, a, a park called Tilden Park, which was a beautiful Many, 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 many acres full of wonderful things. We would bicycle up these hills to go see the beautiful view. From the looking east on a clear day, you could see the Sierras. And to the west, you looked to the Golden Gate Bridge and out across the bay, out into the Pacific. Anyway, there was a communication site up there. And my buddies and I, we'd hop the fence 
and look into the cracks of the buildings, ventilation vents or whatever, and we could hear relays clicking in there. And it was kind of warm because everything was tubes and they have a mm-hmm. certain smell and all that. You know, we were already very interested in electronics at that time, communications. So that was in our blood then. And here's what's really cool. After going to vocational school, which is, I'm a strong believer in, which certainly needs a, a point of mention, because it's starting to become more of a conscious awareness in school districts and funding and stuff to start reintroducing, well, vocational skills, whether it be you know, plumbing or framing of homes yeah, or the trades, trade schools, etc. Within a high school environment, mm-hmm. when, when we were going to school, we had an auto shop. A, uh, which wouldn't be applicable anymore. You can't fix your cars. Well, but, you have to uh, plug a computer into them in order to do anything. That's right. But we had a wood shop, a metal shop. I, I attended all of that stuff. And it helped understand how things are put together and, and work and, you know, work with your hands. You know, the difference with a screwdriver and a wrench or whatever. It's pretty darn handy. So anyway, I went to Portland, Oregon for a couple of years to go to school, vocational only. I barely got out of high school. If I hadn't passed uh, U.S. government, I wouldn't have made it, and I did make it, but, man, I wasn't college material. You didn't cause any trouble in high school, did you? Got suspended twice. (laughs) I heard that. Yeah, yeah. Is there a good story behind that, or is it just silly? and, And that stems from an extension of my curiosity all in life, you know, the Christmas light, well, I was curious, how did it work? One thing led to another. Uh, and, and curiosity can learn, turn to an interest, and the, which may turn to a passion. Right here. In my case, it turned to a whole lifelong career. Same. So, uh, you know, again, something might come from either education, the traditional form academics, or hands-on, perhaps. Well, in my case, one of my side interests was, out of curiosity, how could it be that one key can open up all those hall lockers or PE lockers. Well, I decided to find out. So I acquired one, tore it all the way down to the guts to the tumblers, saw how it worked, made the key with a small file. You made your own key. Yeah, made my own key. Uh, You know, if you're a couple of hairs off, it won't work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, accuracy and all that. And then to go try it on a real lock was the moment of truth. And, and it worked. Well, I was kind of hooked. I didn't steal anything. I wasn't into all of that. But I was really intrigued by being able to reverse engineer lock systems and stuff. I ended up making stuff that fit all the neighborhoods at the parks and everything else just because I could. Well, I showed too many people and ultimately got busted and got suspended. And uh, so that was one of the stories. Which is I mean, I guess it's good in one sense that they caught on to what you were doing, but it's not like you were stealing anything. So, I mean, you were learning something. You weren't taking anything. So, eh, I guess I can understand where they're coming from. But I guess it's a good lesson to, you know, if you keep learn, your mouth shut, if nothing else. <laughs> thank you. If you learn something, keep it to yourself. Well, it was hard not to show my friends. Watch this, you know. And how old are you at this point when you oh, figured out how to do that? Tenth grade. So six. Well, I started it in the 8th grade. I learned that in the 8th grade. <laughs> and then I uh, got busted for it in the 10th grade. Um, but, you know, a spinoff of that to this day is useful because I own, you know, all these communications facilities and they all have to be locked up. 
and I have a master key system and then individual keys are cellular stores. They all have individuals. Heck, I'm a, I do my own locksmithing because I, I already you know, know what it is. So it's come in handy. I mean, I could have gone that way in my profession, but I didn't. But it was a curiosity. And getting back to that, interesting in things can lead you all sorts of directions. And people stereotype kids nowadays, say, well, they don't have the degree of interest anymore. You know, they just sit and play video games. Well, maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know, and I don't want to get into it. But things were different back in the day. We really would participate in the neighborhood and the things that were available more to us. The things that were interesting back in the days for some outside vocation might be astronomy or chemistry, uh, et cetera, et cetera, because we didn't have any other alternatives. Mm-hmm. If you were interested in things and such, me, I was, you know, more interested in roaming around and doing stuff, but it, it was different. All right, so so I got to share this. It's so cool, passion. So going to that radio site back in the old days, that was really neat. After getting out of vocational school in Portland, I found a job with one of six factory-owned General Electric service centers. They had a mobile radio department. They were number two to the big name Motorola. Well, I got a job with them, and after I proved myself after six months, they issued me a company van full of test equipment, alarm codes, and keys. I went to many communication sites, including that very same one that I went back to as a kid. That you peeked in through the vents of? I could open the doors, undo the alarm, and without be inside. making a key. You without were, making, you were I was issued, issued the key. The key. <laughs> they considered me trustworthy. That's great, and I proved them right. I took it very serious. I was proud of it. But there I was. Can you imagine that moment? You know, how many years later would that have been? I was probably only ten or twelve or something. But still, um, so I learned a lot about that industry, which gave me the confidence uh, to move up here and start my own business. And now I own seven radio communications towers, which I either bought as other ones became available in many cases built them totally meaning uh build a building uh bring electricity into it erect a 150 foot tower uh cement in the base guy wires rebar climb it myself to put 10 feet at a time one over another whatever stack it to 150 feet um that's kind of uh pretty special not everybody can go do 150 feet Took yeah. me a while to acclimate over the years, but you know now that's part of my life. So the point being, an interest as a kid, taking it as a career, folding it into my own business, uh, and doing well with it. W- what a great story that is. Starting with you know pretty simple interest, the Christmas tree. You just don't know. So how did you make the decision to move from San Francisco up here, and what was the transition like? What did you have at that point in your life, and what did it take to get into a position where you could actually start your own business? And move away and leave everything behind. It was a huge step. I had to quit my good job. Uh, But here's what allowed that to fall into place. I always enjoyed living in the country or envisioned living in it, but I always enjoyed the country. My sister, nine years old, nine years older than I, moved to the country when I was in high school. I got to go visit from time to time up in the gold country, Placerville, Auburn. And I saw how nice that would be. And, um, my wife was born and raised in a smaller rural area and we'd been married for well let me back up a hair my father had passed on and my wife and i were just becoming very very close she showed me her true heart and soul by by staying with me for a few days while i had to deal with arrangements the passing of my father funerals notifications and all that to help support me and it made me realize 
uh, uh, life is short and not being alone and all that. So we got married soon thereafter. She wanted to move to the country as well. And the Bay Area was getting pretty crowded and pretty intense and, you know, all of that sort of thing. We came up here on a vacation just to roam around Crater Lake and the Umpqua area and then head over to the coast and back down. It, it, was, a, it was our vacation. I had a friend of mine living in Grants Pass. He was a ham radio guy. I'd already talked to him for years. So we came through. He drives me up 6th Street and down 7th Street and says, well, what do you think? Grants Pass. I says, yeah, nice little town. He says, nobody's doing two-way radio and there's a need. Matter of fact, he was a broadcast engineer, Steve Gallagher was his name. So he knew about electronics and he knew there was a need for it. Just the very beginning, the logging industry was you know, still happening and there was a need for communications. And about what year was this? 84. Okay. So the logging industry is still going pretty strong at that point. Yeah, yeah, 84, 85. So that night, Barb and I camped out near Union Creek up by Crater Lake, a little campfire, and here's the, the beauty of it all. We said, what if someday we have our own business? What if someday we live in the country? What if we leave the barrier, our jobs, the rest of our families, our homes, leave it all behind? What if? Well, it was pretty damn exciting to think we'd have that adventure together and start over in the country. So uh, a week later, we're back home. Vacation is over. I hop in the same company van, hop on the same freeways and go to the same customers that I'd already been doing for 10 years. But I had a dream. It was very exciting to think and our future could be formed by the concerns just mentioned. That week went by and I started freaking out. Yeah, the grass is always greener. It's, it, the logging was just starting to slow down, so we were worried about more of economic, economically depressed concerns. What if we can't make it at all financially? We're walking away from everything. After that first week, I talked to Barb and said, I don't think we should go for those reasons. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm not saying I'm scared, but I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. It, it just doesn't make sense at this point. She was heartbroken, cried, but understood and says, I'll follow your decisions. And then I said, well, maybe someday we'll do it. Yeah, right. Maybe someday. You know how that goes. You got to go. You either got to go or there don't ever go. do it, right? There you go. So that was Sunday afternoon. Monday morning comes. I hop in the same van, same freeways, <laughs> the same customers. And I realized I had squashed that dream like a bug. And I felt like a real schmuck. I wasn't being fair or giving a chance to Barb and I at all. So I lived with that for a week. Didn't like it. Said, let's go. We're going to do it. Gave notice, finished up the house where we were living that we remodeled. It was a beautiful old historic piece of, in, in uh, New Almaden, south of San Jose, where mercury was discovered. And back in the 1800s, mercury was used for uh, making gunpowder and refining gold. So anyway, it was a neat area and a lot, lot of neat history. Anyway, so we split. So we came up here in 86, and uh, I hit the ground running. I knew the industry. So again, from going to the radio site as a kid to being employed to go to them, coming up here and developing in the industry. Now I've been in it for 33 years up here, 46 years in the industry, um, owning seven radio sites. And we'll tell people a little bit what communications can be. You asked me that a while ago, but you know, here I go rambling on. Uh, and now I'm looking to retire. When the industry was in its heyday, so was I. I couldn't be more thankful, but I, I've had enough. 
What pushed the envelope was uh, my fifth employee over the years has moved on to uh, a better job in the industry like the others had as well. I'm very proud of that, having trained them. Kyle is now living down in uh, the Roseville, Sacramento area, working for the state of California, shy of six figures, doing important communications work. Um, and now I'm left doing it all. He did 80% of my work, or not 85 perhaps, and now he's gone. Just so recently he did. Yeah, two months ago. Okay, I feel like we just skipped a big portion, though. Because, Probably did. Uh, which is fine. Yeah, um, for now. I, I think it's very cool. You told me this on the phone the other day, that you've had basically five employees, mm -hmm. for the most part, over the 33 years. And you were able to train them and, mm -hmm. and have them all for a long period of time, which I think is awesome. Mm -hmm. And in that communications business, and I think it's important to, to for people listening who may not know, uh, we did have your son-in-law, Michael, in here mm -hmm. uh, recently, and he runs the cellular side of your and Barb's business and Correct. his now, too, partially his. Um, so just make the distinction between the two. There's the U.S. cellular stores that he's operating now, but you were mainly involved in the two-way radios and the pagers. Pre-cellular. In, in a pre-cellular in a separate business that was based out of the same location as the first U.S. cellular store. That's right. That you guys had. And so that was really what you were up to. So you were the mad scientist back there in the garage working mm -hmm. on the log trucks and everything else when mm -hmm. I would come in to go to the cell phone side mm -hmm. and ambulances and fire trucks and whatever else pulled That's in right. there. So let's back up just a little bit. Did you say 1986 was when you started? Up here. Siskiyou Communications? Correct. So what did you do to get started? Well, I built a paging system that at one point had a thousand people on it. People may not remember pagers. People called them beepers sometimes. I had one. Yep, yep, yeah, it was very necessary. There was no cellular. A lot of doctors had them. Oh, that was a biggie. Mm -hmm. Anybody who needed to be able to be contacted, uh, you could dial a seven digit telephone number. I was able to buy blocks of telephone numbers. I had 4,000 telephone numbers I could buy from the phone company, How much? Lease, lease them. How much did you have to pay for those? 10 cents a piece a month. Okay. So I, what that cost me 400 bucks or something, I don't know. For 4,000 numbers. Yeah. And then how much did you get per line when you A pager you... would cost the user $8 a month if paid yearly, 9 if biannually, and uh well it was 8 yearly, 9 biannually and and uh 10 monthly or however that went. Any 8 9 10. Dollars. So, you know, if you have 1,000 people, it made a whole lot of money. The two-way radio industry can, and it's always been kind of a secret. Nobody really cared about it. Uh, back in the day, you had TV repair, and then it kind of went to computers. Um, it's critical to have communications, police, fire, ambulance. That's the public safety side. You've know, you got the highway department and water department, and there's all these, these, these systems out there. And then there's the business side where you know, tow trucks and delivery trucks Anybody who needs to, you know, be in contact with their fleets. Radio was the option. There were no cellulars. So I had that all up and running really good. I had, I had radio telephone. You could dial out and direct dial in this clunky old handheld thing. But uh, it was all put together, you know, by my hands and my ideas to create the business. You say, well, what did I do? I built radio sites, built radio systems. And so you built the radio sites and the radio systems in order to operate those two-way radios. That's right. People who needed those kinds of systems. Be it either a building and a tower where somebody could lease space in my building like an FM broadcaster or a repeater for ambulance, fire, whatever, repeater being a relay station, 
or I would often have my own equipment that people could lease space on to talk amongst their fleets without having to have the rest of the infrastructure. They just wanted to talk and have it work. So there was both applications of it. And uh, radio sites to this day, people see radio towers all over the place. It's the same concept. But a lot of them are way back in the mountains, four and 5,000 feet where people don't see them. But radio waves work a lot like light. So if you can be up high, you can see forever. Well, the radio waves go forever, which presents a problem in the winter. In the Bay Area, it was no big deal. We didn't have mountains quite that high, two and 3,000. But up here, they snow in four, five, six, seven, eight feet. I've got pictures of King Mountain buildings completely buried. I'm having to go in by snowmobile and many times uh, park it at the end because it's just too wild and, and snowshoe in. It's rare that I have to go in the winter, but it can happen. When I was young, it was a thrill, an excitement, a challenge, an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I was always an outdoor guy. Now, it's just a real pain in the ass. I mean, my <laughs> gosh, everything's really well, you, heavy, and I'm going to get stuck, and it's cold. Well, and, and it's one thing to have to wrestle a snowmobile. And the last time I wrestled a snowmobile, I think I was 16 years old, and I thought I was going to have a heart attack at 16 up on King Mountain trying oh. to get one of those unstuck when it was buried. Yeah. But you didn't just say snowmobile in. You said snowmobile and or snowshoe all the way to the building up on top of the mountain, That's which right. is a whole nother level when it comes to putting in uh, the physical work to get to the mountain to make sure the communications equipment is working. On the back of the snowmobile, there would be an ice chest bolted down, and that was my big giant toolbox, as well as gloves and extra gloves and clothes and food and water and you know tools and all that kind of stuff. Strapped to it would be a shovel to dig out. Snowshoes would be strapped to it as well. And often I'd take a small chainsaw because there could be trees laying down in the road. Uh, and you're up there by snow. yourself. So I went in like, well, I don't know what you'd call me at that point, Mr. Mountain Man, you know. I feel like that would have made a great reality TV show before reality TV shows were go. even a thing. How it gets done. Let me show you how. Well, when you <laughs> think about I don't know how many of these shows you've watched, whether it be Axemen or the guys, uh, you know, Deadliest Catch or all these different industries, whether it's fishing, logging, mm -hmm. dirty jobs. Good point. When you think about it, and you know who has space in your buildings, Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about this in private. Like you said, there's fire, there's ambulance, there's mm -hmm. police, there's maybe three-letter agencies. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, our search and rescue group up here has a uh, group of volunteers under the uh, heading JCEC, Josephine County Emergency C Communications, about 20 ham radio operators volunte volunteering their time through a bunch of relay stations that are in all of my buildings. For that aspect of it, Hellgate jet boats, they have to have a good radio system. Anything could happen downriver. They might see an accident. They might, someone could have a heart attack, fall out. So, you know, we're not talking CBs here. We're talking, you know, real business radio like Police Fire. The list goes on and on. But yes, all that stuff would be in the building. FM translators, uh, so that the FM signal from a major station could get out in the boonies. Big cities don't necessarily have that, but the rurals do. Mm -hmm. You're fully aware of that. Yeah. So, yeah, there's that ongoing need. And, and you have to make sure they're up and operational. That's your job as the guy that runs the, the mountaintop? Yeah. Um, or are they partly responsible for that? In, in many cases, the customer owns their own equipment. I have cellulars in one of my big mountains, $8. Well, the cellular people take care of all their own stuff. Pacific Power and Light, equivalent to PG&E. They have a whole quadrant of a room, a partition in my building as a room. They've got all their own stuff they maintain. It's evolving such that I don't have nearly as much of my stuff because the industry is 
gone the way of the buffalo. But uh, it's leased out a lot to people who have those other needs for their own equipment, which is great because I don't have to fix that. I'm just required to keep the building kind of running and stuff like that. Now, let's go back to when you built the the company. Did you ever envision it being that or you built it for yourself and your own radio network? And then over time, people needed space on mountaintops. So you started leasing space to them and tower space. And now you have, I mean, what do you, what's the busiest site you have? $8 mountain up by Cave Junction, which is the most rural one that I have, which I thought would never come to fruition. It's by far the biggest. I just knew it was on a highway corridor that went between inland, Grants Pass, and the coast. And those corridors are popular, or important, I should say, just like all highway corridors are. And that connector also served the little town of Cave Junction by I knew it had purpose out there. No one else was doing anything much. There was just a couple of small buildings that were for their own independent needs like broadcast. So I thought that would be an opportunity. I had no idea it would come to be my busiest site. Uh, all of this has exceeded my wildest expectations. I was on the right course. I did the right things. I just didn't know it would grow to this magnitude. I got up here just at the right time because the needs were developing. And then I was developing infrastructure to accommodate those needs what did it take to get those sites on top of those mountains for people out there wondering well how do you get the top of a mountain really how do you get power up there how does that all come Mm -hmm. about well in some instances it's the federal government being either the u.s forest service or the blm they already have locations that are qualified as designated electronic sites there might be a small building up there already maybe for the logging or maybe a little FM translator or something already. Power is typically brought in already. So that gives me a, a, a leg up because it would be prohibitively expensive. And the Forest Service and such, they're encouraged to accommodate uh, these leases such that the technology can go forth of public need. You know, that's mm-hmm. what the Forest Service government is supposed to do, address the public need. So uh, they would uh, rubber stamp my plans, and uh, I pay a fee to be up there. It's a percentage of my income based on the type of equipment that is and the type of populace. You pay a lot more in Los Angeles to the, to the government than you would in Cave Junction. It, it's a spreadsheet, radio type versus populace. Anyway, um, so often it's the federal government. And four of them are on that. And up here, some of them are on private land, private timber big names like boise cascade and such uh i don't have any on boise but they host a lot of them you know in the state of washington and such so the private timber people would be uh glad to do it on fielder over here one of my radio sites the timber company has that isn't overly happy with the productivity of their trees because it's a lot of rocks so he jokes well these radio sites grow faster than these darn trees and they have others have come behind me uh, like cellulars, because mm-hmm. they didn't exist when I started this. Now, good for you, though, right? Because oh, if you're absolutely. running the top of the mountain and they're not growing trees and you're growing towers and you're you're putting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, it's up there. That's great absolutely. for you. We call it vertical real estate, <laughs> 150 footers. Now, Mount Onion is solar powered. There's no power up there and there never will be. So now I have a roof of solar panels and a large bank of batteries, but two generators so that when the storms come in and we don't have sun for two or three or four days, and shorter days, more night, not as much charging the day at all, uh, I have to start generators. I can do it remotely controlled by touch tones by sending those touch tones on a handheld portable 
to start generators. I can start number one or number two. I can hear them start, know they're running right. And then I have a electronic voice telling me what the voltage is, what the ampers is. So I either know it needs to be charged to start the generators or they're charging fine and now they're being charged. So that takes a little ongoing management. Uh, solar takes a whole different array of stuff. You've never appreciated a simple extension cord, just a simple extension cord that would run your light, you know, mm -hmm. for your newspaper reading on the sofa. Uh, that would run the entire site. But uh, without it, you've got array, uh, solar arrays and regulators and batteries and telemetry and generators. Oh, my gosh. So if you have a bad extension cord up there, you're... Your toast? I, you, I you wish to I get... had a 10-mile extension cord and I wouldn't have to deal with any of that. It's yeah. not going to happen. Wow, isn't that something? I didn't even think about the fact that one of them could be all solar. And so those generators, you have to check the levels to fire I, them up. They don't automatically know when, it's, when it drops to a certain level and they don't automatically kick on. I send a code, five digits of touchstone, and a little talker will go, the voltage of the battery is. And if it's 11.7, I better start the generators. Mm -hmm. If it's 12.7, I'm good. You know, so I, I choose when to start it. Then I set some codes and I can hear it start and crank and run. And then it shuts off automatically after two hours. So in case I forget, I want to go to bed or something. But, uh, you know, it, it's. Does that mean you have to check before you go on vacation if it's wintertime? Get this. I have never gone on vacation in my 33 years <laughs> in the wintertime. Is that why? Because that's why I, I've been reluctant to leave anybody else to be responsible for that. Even though I had employees until two months ago, they can start to the generators, but if something went wrong, two people should go on a snowmobile. I not I didn't used to do that, but for certain reasons, like I ran into some problems. I got hurt really bad once. I got, I got knocked unconscious, laid in the ditch because the darn ramp didn't load right and all that. Anyway. And you're laying there by yourself? Yeah, I used to climb towers by myself. I don't do any of that anymore. My wife says... You need to take someone with you. If you need to get a second snowmobile, we've got the money. Go get it. I want you coming home at night. That's a great point. Quote, unquote. Smart lady. That was Sunday. I had a new, uh, I used another one on Tuesday. <laughs> that makes sense. They usually know what they're talking about, whether we want to admit it or not. Yeah, my, my, strong, my wife has a strong sense of uh, keen intuition, and she was right. Um, so anyway, I never went on vacation uh, in the wintertime. I, I, I didn't want to leave someone with that responsibility. Until last week, for the first time ever, I closed the shop for a solid week, a week and a day. It was in Atlanta area with nobody behind, not me or not a technician. What did that feel like? Liberating. <laughs> I want to retire. <sighs> I was distancing. I was practicing distancing, distancing myself from the... Uh, responsibilities so yeah it, it nothing really happened i left messages on, on my machines and stuff uh out of the area i will be checking messages once a day typically in the evening and i'll respond as required i didn't even say as necessary i said as required shoot well a trip to the ref the fridge was required for me i'm really enjoying this conversation i was getting thirsty and if you happen to get thirsty at any point just let me know and I guess I still have some in here. You good? All right. Well, if at any point you need something else, let me know, and I, I'm happy to accommodate. Yeah, I'm a third gone on one bottle, right? I'm a slow drinker. Right, well, that's fine. But it wets the whistle. So, yeah, you know, all that's pretty exciting. You know, it was, it was marvelous to be going into the top of these mountains. Um, it, may, it might be a beautiful sunny day, but there might be, you know, three feet of snow pack. You get up there on the snowmobile, it might be an easy trip in, never get stuck once or something. Shut it down and look around and see... 
you're almost to the coast and almost to Crater Lake and the sun's on your, your shoulders. And it's a really special feeling to be at a special place like this. It really is. It's, it's you know, I, I make a joke of it. I tell people I get to go all these wonderful places and I've got all the keys to the gates. I'm entitled. So, yeah, it's pretty slick. But, uh, you know, like I said, I've lived it a long time. And people would say, well, what are you going to do when you get too old to do this? And I used to say, well, do it slower. Well, I didn't know what else to say. Well, now I'm hoping to sell out. And we actually have an offer. Uh, it, it came in. I, I've got a company that wants to buy me. It was lower than I want it to be, and I expected that to be. So we'll play the game. We'll go back and forth a few times. So uh, when you say wants to buy you, what do you mean by that? Does that mean everything and all the sites? Do you keep some of the sites? I'm keeping four of the best. I want to take three of them and sell them to them because they're the ones that have a lot of the customer equipment in it. And if they're going to get my customer base, which is critically important to me, I want someone to maintain a good working relationship to take care of my customers. Um, I I have a strong sense of appreciation for that. Uh, And and they're um, service-oriented. So um, I would sell them three of the radio sites and everything in it, Uh, a lot of FCC licenses, for frequencies, uh, they would lease space in my shop. Uh, it's got all the test equipment tools right there. Come in, sit down. I'll leave the solder iron on for you, just like Motel 6. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to facilitate that, and they can have a presence in southern Oregon and uh, uh, continue to expand their business and, and take over the responsibility for, you know, my customers who have been you know, a rewarding experience to accommodate their needs. Yeah, we kind of caught you at an interesting time here. Um, you know, it just so happens that the podcast is getting off the ground as you're winding down your business and something that you've made very successful. It's very cool to sit back and look at it and be able to hear the story about you in that van on the busy freeway in the San Francisco Bay Area, mm-hmm. almost there, ready to make the decision. I'm not even going to say your gut says no because your gut was probably saying yes, but my maybe brain was saying your brain no. and the whole ma- and you said not fear, but yeah, it's hard to say how my much heart of that. said yes, my brain yeah. said no, and knowing that it took only a couple of weeks, which really isn't that much time, living with and then living without the dream. I just love contrast. The, yeah, that you decided to go after it though, mm-hmm. because that's one of those things where I think it's so underrated and people don't do it often enough. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this was to encourage people who have an idea or a thought or something they want to do Uh to take the leap of faith and go for it and just see what happens. You can always go back. You can always start over. We've all, I started over. Right. Right. And and you're right. And, And the older I am now and some of the philosophies that I'm learning more about specifically is to follow your heart a little more. If people made decisions more with their heart, even how they treat others, mm-hmm. obviously the world would be a better place. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to really live that and share that with others. Yeah, now it was a big risk, but we followed our heart. And that, for that reason, is even more rewarding. Yeah, I would agree with that because... There's a couple of different ways you can do that. And I've learned after being in business for, I guess now it's been about 20 years, which is nowhere near as long as you've been in it. But just from what I've been able to see, there's a couple of different ways you can go about things and you can be successful different ways. You can be successful by 
cutting corners and ripping people off and using people. Mm-hmm. And you can also be successful by treating people the right way, doing the right thing, mm-hmm. treating people like you'd want to be treated. Absolutely. And I always say this is that I know when I go home at night, I can go to sleep. And I don't know that everyone can say that. Uh, but I think there's a lot to be said for being able to do it the right way, being involved in the community, being able to sponsor things in, in the community, as I know you guys have for many, many years, mm-hmm. whether it be sports teams or signs on a fence or mm-hmm. uh, naming a program or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be super involved in the community, have your kids grow up a part of the community, and then to see what ultimately it can end up being is is... I don't know about for you, but for me, it's so hard to look at the whole picture, whether it's it's your situation or other people's situations, and believe it. Because if you were to go back to the beginning, you wouldn't necessarily think that was even possible. Two words come to mind. Reputation and integrity. You can earn a reputation. It could be either of the two that you mentioned. Cutting corners, squeezing other people's deals, taking advantage of their desperation. Oh, he needs the money or he's got to do this now. You know, I'll offer him low ball or whatever. Or being fair or more than fair and gracious and honest and sincere and giving of yourself, still making money. See, I had a little advantage in that, you know, I had return income from these radio sites, so I didn't have to like nickel and dime every darn customer to death. And I sure didn't. And they're going to miss me when I'm gone. I'll tell you that right now. But uh, it's been a real honor and privilege to own my own business so that I could operate the business in that fashion. That's, that's one of the biggest reward of all of it. Sure, I've created all this other and it was successful. But I keep telling you that word customers, all of my customers and all that, they're people too. And I can go out with my heart smiling. Yeah, because if you, you know? don't have your customers, you don't have anything. They're, they're, you know, they're business people too. You know, they came to me because they had the needs of what I provide. And it, it was an honor and privilege to serve them. Um, fire radios. We sell a lot of fire radios. I sell them less cost than anybody that I know of because I already make pretty good money. And all you do is hand me a credit card and I hand you a box of the radio in it because they program it at fire camp. How much money do I need to need to, to do just to do that? And I make good profit. So I'm charging less than anybody on the West Coast that they can find that I'm aware of. Yes, sir. Glad to do it. My privilege. You're welcome. Well, it's an important service, too. I mean, you're not just being fair with people. It's a service that's important to all of us. And we've seen what what, you know, devastation those big fires can have on our communities. I mean, just right now, as recently as tonight. My sister-in-law has her power shut off just outside of Reading yes. because of the situation that happened in Paradise. That's correct. And so that's very important. And a lot of this is, yes, the last two days it's been national news that PG&E, which is Northern California, you got Southern Cal Edison and you know, LA area, uh, will be shutting off power to uh, potentially 800,000 people, uh, 31,000 here, 50,000 there in the various counties because of high winds high dry winds uh, in a drought-stricken area that's been drought-stricken for 10, 12 years now, more so like us, Mm -hmm. and their trees are struggling and dying. But here's the thing. A lot of people, and you'll see it on social media, are saying, oh, PG&E, all they care about is their shareholders and profit. Why don't they care of their infrastructure? 
That is not the case. That infrastructure, even though it's aging, there's not much to really go wrong with it. The parts are significantly strong, and the bolts and the pieces and the wire, they don't really wear out necessarily. They're not moving parts. Here's the problem. All these trees have grown, and they're dry, and they're big, and the winds can take a branch or a whole tree into the power lines. That's what started the Paradise Fire, a tree into the power lines. It wasn't the utility's fault. So they say, well, why don't they trim the trees? Trees Inc. up here is 365 days a year under contract by PPNL to keep chasing them all the time. And they still can't keep up A lot of people are resentful because they come under their, they cut them too close to their house. And here's the other thing. Yeah, they have a right-of-way. But a lot of these trees are on private property. 50 feet over is private property. Well, it's a 70-foot tree. Guess what? If it goes to the power lines. So it's a real catch-22. And that's the main issue. It's not the infrastructure itself that's causing a problem. Well, that's a great point, and that's something we don't hear about. No, you don't, because everybody wants to jump to conclusion and blame the other guy, and they don't know. Wow. That's interesting. Very yeah, interesting. But the results are the same. And what are we going to do about it? Well, they've chosen to shut down the power to reduce liability because they're already being sued and declaring bankruptcy to isolate themselves from the uh, I get it. Fire. I totally get it. I, I don't blame them at all for shutting the power off. But look at the severity of it. It's bad. People who have medical concerns are oxygen machine. Uh, this and that is a hardship. I mean, people say, what about my all the meat in my refrigerator? Well, yeah, it's a huge, huge hardship. Um you don't really realize till the power goes away. A lot of people in rural areas on wells. Well, you don't have any water at all. You can't get gas at the gas station. Grocery store's not open. The only people that have generators are the people in their homes, which a lot of them came from Y2K that never materialized. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, generators and municipalities and you know, police, fire, ambulance. They got generators. You know, like I said, hospitals, all that. But the rest of the world kind of doesn't. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next, and you know, when this airs, it'll already be into it a few days, but it could get interesting. Very. And it's going to take days to restore the power once the, uh, weather event has passed because they need to go out on patrol to see if anything has gone into the lines, trees and such, because if they are, and you turn the power back on, well, you're going to get some sparks. You're going to have the same problem over again. Plus, you need to start bringing the loads back on slowly because the generating plants have to ramp back up slowly uh, to start accommodating that load. You can't flip one switch and just turn on the whole city. So it, you it, think this could take longer than a week then? Uh, they're saying it could take three to five days to, to fully restore power in a large metro once it's been shut down to, to evaluate the, the, the hazards and to bring things back on gently so not one circuit gets overloaded. See, you can have a cascading event. That happened on the East Coast a couple of times, you know, 20 years ago. New York City went out. A tree went to a major power line. Well, that took out that line. The others tried to make up for it. They were overloaded, so the electronics backs them, disconnects them to protect that equipment. Well, then the other lines coming from the other part of town were overloaded, and everything started backing off. Two or three states on the West Coast went out from a cascading automatic disconnect event you got to take it gingerly you can't do it all at once just shows you how vulnerable that system could be it's true um there has not been an increase in infrastructure uh and there's been a big increase of populace there, there was brownouts you know 20 years ago in the uh san jose and los angeles area because they had to start regulating power because well that's when uh what, what enron that whole fiasco oh. with that part of that was based on that scam but, but we do have 
uh, high tension power lines running at, at full capacity. Do you realize that for the West Coast, the three places that generate the most power are the John Cooley Dam on the Columbia in Washington, and then the John Day Dam on the Columbia outside of Portland, and then Hoover Dam in Las Vegas outside of Las Vegas. And those three are connected together out in the desert by three 500,000-volt lines, which is the entire backbone that we then suck off of to go to Portland and Seattle and Eugene and Medford and all that. So it's a big distribution network, and that's why it's called the grid. And it's nothing simple. It's complicated. Wow. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, I had no idea. Tell you how much of a geek I am when I discovered Google Earth and got done looking at the glaciers and, and, and <laughs> such on the uh, Swiss Alps and uh, other things around the world. I followed those lines just because I wanted to see where they really went. And I push-pinned the major substations so you can zoom out and see our West Coast infrastructure. A true geek. I'm interested. What's really interesting is how easy it really is to figure out where that grid is because you just told us exactly how to do it. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. It's vulnerable in that's a lot of ways. my point. That's right. I know. I know. <sighs> well, what haven't we touched on that you want to talk about? I know you have a lot to talk about. You told me when you walked in the garage, you mentioned something about your Elk Mountain Jam that I think is pretty cool that you did hey, for years. Hey, that's a good one. And I never had a chance to make it up there. I know your son-in-law mentioned it. I think it was probably one of the last years you did it. 21 years in a row without missing one until about five or six years ago when I gave it up. So Elk Mountain, 5,000 feet, 4,600, big communications building, 20 by 30, 150-foot tower, a parking area, just gravel. Oh, shoot, 50 by 40. Where is Elk Mountain? Hmm? Where is Elk Mountain for people unfamiliar? North with? of Medford by maybe 30 miles. East of Grants Pass by 12. Southwestern Oregon. Mm-hmm. The view up there, you can see the rim of Crater Lake. You can see uh, the top 15%, 20% of Mount Shasta, 150 miles away in uh, California. Anyway... Being a musician that I am, uh, guitar, rock and roll, blues, I thought this would be a good place to have an outdoor party. So I took a modest group of friends up there and we saw the potential. So for 21 years, I would take off on Friday, haul all the PA equipment, the drum set, all this stuff, uh, put out this big carpet, put up a tarp that uh, so we wouldn't have sun on us in the day, we wouldn't have evening dew on the equipment at night. And we'd go Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, part of Sunday, people would come up and uh, spend the night either in a tent or the back of their car, the back of the pickup or or whatever. And it was a really wonderful time to have that much time with different people coming and going to influence the direction or style the music or the camaraderie or whatever. Um, Elk Jam. We did it for 21 years without missing one. And then Beege, my right-hand man, who worked for me for 21 years, uh, heard his back. And couldn't work for me anymore. Didn't work for anybody. Went on disability. But I used him as out of kind of an honor and excuse to not do it anymore. Well, Beach can't come. And, uh, you know, I don't want to make him feel bad that's still going and he can't be there. And he used to help me a lot, set up and break down and all that. And I didn't want to do it myself anymore. It got to be a lot of work. So I, I kind of used him as a, a point of uh, privilege or whatever you want to call it and just called it off. So it was basically a jam with invite only with friends. Invite friends and bring your friends. 
How many people did you have up there most years? Oh, 25, 30 at the most. Just jamming. Yeah, it'd be a lot of spectators. You know, we had chairs all set up and hell, there might be, shoot, eight, 10, sometimes 12 people at a time. Somebody's on the Congo, congas and the bongos and might be three guitars in your bass and three, three up front microphones, just like you'd see on a regular stage with monitors and all that. Heck, it, you know, usually more male than female, but if the females were there, we'd always encourage them to sing and some sang pretty well. That opened up a whole new area of songs and, and, and opportunities and up at 5,000 feet, just jamming, having a good old time. No one know, no one knew, no one cared. We didn't bother them. They didn't bother us. However, one year where I used Christmas lights to string along underneath the tarp so we didn't have a bare bulb, you know, in an in a intense location, distributed even lighting, the bulbs towards the edge dropping off towards the hill were spotted by people down in the valley floor, Evans Valley, Weimar. Someone called 911, thought it was Embers. Did you get a visitor? ODF and the Evans Valley Fire Department rolled up. Somebody said, we see cars coming down the road. There's a little straightaway before the stage. We didn't think anything. You know, people came and go. Somebody comes up to me and goes, I think the cops are here. I'm thinking, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> what do they want with Don't us they have up here? better to do? <laughs> Way up there, 5,000 yeah, feet. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I told the band, cool, cool, cause stop, 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 stop. So I go walk up. Well, I happen to know the guys because I you know, sell them fire radios and stuff. Steve? Yeah, whatever his name was. Russ? Oh, my gosh. So uh, they told me about the report. And I says, no, we have no open fires at all because I was conscious of that. And they saw how it could have been the Christmas light and all that. They said, oh, my gosh, look at all this, you guys. I said, yeah, come on over and take a look. And all they go, no, 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 we're, 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 you're safe. We understand that that's fine. So they, they split. Um, but, yeah, that was kind of a coincidence there. And so I told the uh, fire chief, in the future, every time I plan to do this, I'll call you ahead of time so you for sure know that it is me on this particular night. Then you don't have to waste their time. They don't oh, have to go all the gosh, way Oh, my gosh, I felt there. real bad about it. So, anyway. That's Well, here, here's another funny one for you. Back in the days when the Drug Enforcement Agency and the FBI had their own radio systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of those were in my mountain building, and I even maintained them for them. Does that mean you can listen in and hear what they're saying? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had two base stations in my uh, shop that talked to four different repeaters down here, and they were controlled by telephone lines. One went to Seattle, and one went to uh, Medford, where their you know, strategic offices were for the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency. Well, I knew the technician. He was a great guy. He was a guitar player, too. Well... He wanted to come up there one time. He wanted to come to Southern Oregon with his girlfriend, make a vacation, go to Crater Lake and raft the rogue. Well, he came up one evening to participate. So I go over to a couple of my buddies and I say, see that guy over there? They go, yeah. I go, DEA. They go, oh. I said, don't worry about it. He's just technician off duty. But it was an interesting contrast. <laughs> and the people that were there. And the, the people that were there. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm, I'm connecting the dots. And their tie dyes. I'm with you. I think yeah, I'm picking yeah, up yeah. Yeah, there isn't a fire up here. That's not what this right. is. But yeah, that's a true story. It's pretty funny. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And uh, you definitely have a lot of stories to tell. And I think a good way to kind of put a bow on this thing and wrap it up would be uh, any piece of advice you have to someone listening if they're considering, you know, taking a leap of faith and doing their own thing or starting a new business or any, any words of wisdom you'd like to pass along. I hate to be so simple simplistic to say do follow your heart but i can tell you follow your dream and if you're lucky enough to have one 
you are indeed lucky because you've heard me say before, uh, uh, curiosity, interest, passion, profession. Keep it in mind. You know, it, 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 how do they say it? If you enjoy your job, you've never worked. A day in your life. Yeah, etc. Um, keep your eyes open. Look around and see what opportunities are. It may not even be in the field that you were, let's just say, went to school for. How many people went to college and, you know, it didn't work out? Mm-hmm. That's kind of why I didn't go. I wanted to, you know, I, 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 I don't, it's too vague, you know. Yeah, I'm sure mean, people might go for, a, you know, a degree in their field, but yeah, yeah, just keep your eyes open. You know, young people, um, hopefully you could find something that, you, that, that, that it draws you to. Ask questions, learn. Don't be afraid to, to intervene. Ask people questions. Be social. They call it networking. Heck, we used to just call it hanging out and BSing, mm-hmm. you know, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but don't be shy. Don't, you know, um, Come out of reach, the shell a little reach, bit. Reach. You know, bring it. People have a lot to give. Don't question, well, maybe this isn't their thing to do or whatever. No, man, you know, I don't want to say sell yourself, but uh, keep your eyes open. Be aware what's going on, and maybe you'll see something that catches your, again, interest. One thing leads to another. I wish I could be more philosophical or uh, um, direct in some master plan, mm-hmm. but there isn't one. Yeah, it's amazing what happens when you put yourself out there. And my dad told me right after I got fired <laughs> that he said, don't mope around with your head down right? because you won't see the door open in front of you. That's exactly So keep right. your head up, keep your eyes looking forward, and when the door opens up, you'll see it open, and it opened within 48 hours. And if you can bring that positive energy within you, it takes energy to hold your head up, look around. That positive energy has some way of infiltrating and others will appreciate it and it might just lead you somewhere. Mm-hmm. Positive energy. You know, you don't have to live in doubt. You don't have to live a full optimism like I do, but I'll tell you, it served me well. Sure doesn't hurt, that's for sure. Oh my gosh, yeah. Great yeah. place to leave it off. Steve Porter, Siskiyou Communications, I thank you so much for coming over and thank you to your family. Your family has been amazing to me ever since we met years and years ago. So yeah. Uh, yeah. definitely helped change my life and it means a lot to me. So and now thank my you. kids are hanging with your kids. Yep. You know, great and, friends and, you know, of ours. My kids are hanging with you and their grandkids are hanging with your kids and you know, that whole thing. So yeah, hopefully you guys can find your own Christmas tree. Plug it in and live your live your life uh, going down the road. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Steve, for coming over. My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun.